The American scholar Craig Etchison has been a prominent figure at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which has just marked its 10th year of hearings. The tribunals have secured convictions against three surviving leaders of the ultra-Maoists, but its critics argue the trials, with a price tag of more than 200 million US dollars so far, are too expensive and have taken too long. The convictions were registered against crimes committed more than 36 years ago, while Pol Pot died under house arrest in 1998. Etchison disagrees with those critics. He also has an acute inside knowledge of the internal workings of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia and the politics which led to its creation. I started by asking Etchison how he originally became involved. Well, in 1991, I was about uh, five or six years out of graduate school and looking for a job in Washington, D.C. One of my interests had been the Khmer Rouge Revolution in Cambodia, and I got the strange idea that there should be an international criminal tribunal for the Khmer Rouge uh, to examine allegations that they had committed genocide during their regime between 1975 and 1979. Now, you have to remember... In 1991, there hadn't yet been any other internationalized criminal tribunals since the days of Nuremberg, immediately after World War II. So a lot of people thought this was a pretty crazy idea, including pretty much everybody at the State Department, the U.S. State Department, and lots of other places as well. So it was also in 1991... October 23rd, in fact, that the Paris Peace Accords were signed. The Paris Peace Accords committed the four warring factions in Cambodia to a peace process. So you had the existing government in Phnom Penh that was Vietnamese-backed and run by Hun Sen. You had also factions from the three previous governments of Cambodia, including the Khmer Rouge, run by Pol Pot, uh, the Lon Nol regime's remnants who had been hiding out in Thailand. Uh, they were run by a, a fellow named Son San. And, of course, you had the Royalist faction, which was nominally headed by former King Norodom Sihanouk. These four factions were forced into a peace process that was to involve a UN-administered election and then an internationally recognized government which would operate under the rule of law. So my idea was that if the Khmer Rouge were going to join a government under the rule of law, I could think of some laws that ought to be enforced straight away, like laws on genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. How did you get involved with the process itself? At what point did you uh, step in and have a, a, a physical say in this is going to happen and this is what we're going to do? That really started in 1991 because the United States government was deeply and formally opposed to the idea of any war crimes tribunal for what had happened in Indochina in general or in Cambodia in particular. 
So I figured if there is going to be an international tribunal, it'll never happen if the United States is opposed to it. Therefore, the first task is to change U.S. policy. Working with some people in the U.S. Congress, in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, we spent three years pushing through a piece of legislation that eventually became known as the Cambodian Genocide Justice Act. Uh, that formally made it the policy of the United States of America to support an, an eventual tribunal. What, what was in that legislation that enabled that change of thinking? Well, first of all, um, it was simply an, an instruction from the Congress to uh, the administration uh, to change a U.S. policy. Um, but it was also carefully negotiated with Congress by people at the State Department uh, in part to ensure that it wouldn't ensnare any uh, U.S. personalities. Uh, we won't mention any names, but I think they might have been concerned about former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Uh, the legislation also provided funding uh, for a uh, research project to attempt to gather evidence of what actually happened during the Khmer Rouge regime, uh, evidence that might eventually be used at a tribunal. Uh, that proposal was put out for bid, and I was on the winning team at Yale University to win that bid, uh, with which we established the Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale University, and subsequently set up the Documentation Center of Cambodia in Phnom Penh as a base for our operations. Right, and that is since that is also known as DCCAM and has since gone on to be a, an enormous contributor in terms of evidence that's uh, been put forward before the tribunal. Uh, can you take us forward a little bit? Uh, I think really the, the wars kept going until 1998 and then at that point it was the Prime Minister Hun Sen and Prince... Ranarid, who sent a letter to the UN requesting that a tribunal go ahead. What happened from there? Actually, it was in June 1997 that uh, the two first prime ministers, uh, the two prime ministers rather, uh, first prime minister Norodom Ranarid and second prime minister Hun Sen, uh, sent a letter to uh, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan requesting the assistance of the United Nations in setting up a tribunal. Of course, uh, less than a month later, uh, Ranarid and Hun Sen fell into a, a brief but rather bloody bout of civil war, uh, which put things a bit askew on the treadle for uh, nearly a year. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the UN did eventually respond to that letter from June 1997, and in late 1998, uh, the UN organized a commission of experts to come and examine the possibilities uh, for a tribunal in Cambodia. Um, uh, they did actually eventually recommend when they delivered their report to the United Nations at the beginning of 1999 that the tribunal should not be held in Cambodia, uh, but that indeed a tribunal with UN assistance should be organized. Right. Now at this point I'd just like to digress a little bit because in the meantime, you had actually spent a good deal of time out there in the boondocks, out there in the uh, collecting evidence for DC Cam, I presume, uh, and basically you were, sit you, were sit you were sitting in mass graves with the dead. 
I remember one headline was uh, uh, written about you was uh, Craig Etchison, a friend of the dead. Can you? What was that like? That experience in dealing with just the sheer scale of death and mayhem that had happened here under Pol Pot. Yes, Luke, I remember that headline too. In fact, I believe you wrote it. It was pretty good. Uh, at the Documentation Center, DC CAM, we organized something we called the Mass Grave Mapping Project, uh, which eventually worked in very nearly every district in Cambodia. Um, there were still a few that were too insecure for our teams to go into, but very nearly in every district we ended up finding mass graves and the remains of what the Khmer Rouge called a security office, uh, which would probably much more properly be named an, an insecurity office. Um, uh, these places were integral to the Khmer Rouge system of mass nationwide terror, and indeed it was at the district level that the majority of victims of the Khmer Rouge were actually killed. Uh, in the process of this work over 10 years, we identified all across the face of Cambodia more than 20,000 mass graves uh, that dated to the period of the Khmer Rouge regime, uh, containing an estimated 1.1 million victims of execution. Uh, this was probably one of the most astonishing of the many projects DCCAM has undertaken. They're enormous numbers. How do they compare on the scale of man's inhumanity? Uh, previously, I guess, if we're looking at um, the history of genocide as a legal concept, uh, how does that compare, say, with the Armenians or with what happened in World War II or Stalin's gulags? If you compare it in terms of absolute numbers to something like Mao's Great Leap Forward in China or Stalin's Great Terror or the Holocaust under Hitler in World War II, it was a relatively smaller event, uh, perhaps two million people uh, as opposed to tens of millions in those other great calamities. But if you compare it relative to the affected population, it was probably the most catastrophic uh, um, attack on a population uh, in known history. Um, Cambodia's population was relatively small at the beginning of this, no more than seven to seven and a half million. And you subtract two million people from that, uh, that means that Essentially, every family has lost all or part of the family. The devastating numbers, and while you were out there in the field, the bureaucracies of the United Nations and Cambodia were grinding slowly forward to a to some kind of resolution, some kind of an agreement for a UN-backed tribunal where the Cambodian judges would have a majority of the say. Uh, eventually that was set up and then you came in as uh, one of the formal investigators. Can you run us through the tribunal, how it started, and then getting that evidence from the field and into a courtroom? The negotiations for the tribunal took nearly a decade. 
and it wasn't just the Cambodian government and the United Nations Secretariat, but many other interested parties as well. Um, many of the regional and great powers were intensely interested in exactly what the shape and mandate of this institution was going to be. Uh, China, the United States, France, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, uh, Thailand. Uh, there were uh, many participants in the negotiation and uh, many political issues that had to be hashed out and resolved before the process could begin to get underway. Uh, that has a lot to do with why it took so long and was such a Byzantine process. But eventually, uh, an agreement was thrashed out that was acceptable to all concerned. And then a final two or three years of raising the necessary funding, uh, creating the physical infrastructure, where the court building was going to be located, uh, getting it fitted out in a, at least a rudimentary way, um, uh, uh, recruiting the key judicial personnel, uh, international and Cambodian judges and prosecutors and an administrative staff. And finally, uh, at the beginning of July uh, 2006, uh, the real business of the court was launched. It turned out that the first order of business, uh, because this was very much a sui generis institution, uh, would be to create a set of internal rules uh, uh, to guide the operations of the court uh, through the investigations and the hearings of the cases. Uh, it took a full year for the judges of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal uh, to hash out those rules. And during that first year, uh, I was working in the Office of Co-Prosecutors, uh, especially with the international co-prosecutor, uh, Robert Petit. And we launched our preliminary investigation, uh, which in that first year, uh, came up with a list of five senior leaders uh, who we proposed uh, should be brought to trial. So in July of 2007, we forwarded a document known as an introductory submission to the Office of Co-Investigating Judges, uh, naming five people uh, who we believed uh, should be brought to trial. And they were, of course? Uh, that was the former de Deputy Secretary of the uh, Communist Party of Kampuchea, Nguyen Chea, uh, the former President of the Democratic Kampuchea State Apparatus, Q. Sampan, uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of the State of Democratic Kampuchea, uh, Ing Suri, uh, his wife, uh, Ing Tirit, who was Minister of Social Affairs, and finally the Khmer Rouge Chief of the Secret Police, Kang Kek Uv, alias Doik. Since then, the tribunal has moved forward, and certainly not without controversy. The first case, uh, 001, was Doik, and he was the head of S21, where according to the evidence, uh, at least 12,500 people perished, although I think many people say that figure was a lot higher. How important was it to get Doik into the chamber and secure a conviction. Indeed, we presented the first five suspects as a single package, but the co-investigating judges quickly decided to separate Doik from the other four and to send him for trial first. 
And there was a good reason for that. As the chief of the secret police, Doik knew all of the secrets of the regime, how it operated internally. Indeed, he was responsible for executing many members of the Politburo who had been purged, and of course for first interrogating them extensively. Uh, thus, he knew a very great deal about what had happened inside the regime, how the regime was structured, and how it operated. Uh, Doik is a peculiar fellow and seemed to feel a good deal of remorse for his role in the regime. Uh, in fact, uh, the Office of Co-Investigating Judges recently released a new document uh, showing at least 15,000 victims from uh, Doik's uh, secret police headquarters. In any event, uh, Doik very nearly pled guilty, except that in the civil law system that prevails in Cambodia, there's no such thing as a guilty plea per se. Uh, but he was relatively cooperative with the court in describing his role as well as the roles of the others, particularly his superiors, including Nguyen Shea. And so this was a crucial building block for the second case, known in the court's vernacular as Case 002, uh, including Nguyen Shea. Right. Our Doik was um, found guilty and subsequently serving a life term for crimes against humanity, uh, among other charges. And in case 002, Nun Chia and Q Sampan were charged with crimes against humanity, along with Yang Tarit and Yang Suri. Now, Yang Tarit was subsequently ruled mentally unfit to stand trial, and she later passed away, along with her husband, Yang Suri. Q Sampan and Nun Chia were subsequently found guilty of crimes against humanity and are now facing additional charges of genocide. You could understand how the casual observer might find it a tad difficult in keeping up with the uh, constant machinations of the tribunal because it does become quite convoluted. Uh, how do you see the tribunal standing since Doik was found guilty and we've seen the, the other leaders, who were the senior leaders of, the, of Pol Pot's regime, the ones who, have, who had survived. How do you see the tribunal progressing since then? Legal experts have suggested that case 002 is the most complex criminal case ever brought to trial anywhere. Uh, so it's perfectly understandable if it's difficult for people on the outside to keep up with all of the twists and turns of the, uh, the legal process at the court. Uh, indeed, it's, I think it's fairly challenging for people inside the court to keep up with all of it. Uh, it's been an extremely dynamic and constantly evolving uh, 10 years uh, that has been the occasion of an absolute tsunami of litigation on a bewildering range of issues uh, that arise in various aspects of these cases. Uh, nonetheless, the court has managed to hack its way through that legal thicket. Um, uh, they did complete the first phase of 002, which involved convicting Nguyen Chea and Q Sampan of crimes against humanity and war crimes. Uh, 
That conviction has been under appeal at the court's Supreme Chamber, and we're expecting a verdict in that appeal sometime later this year, uh, perhaps September, perhaps, perhaps October, uh, which will bring us to finality in the first part of case 002. Meanwhile, in the second part of case 002, which involves many other charges in the original indictment, uh, including genocide, um, the nationwide system of extermination centers, uh, and a, a wide variety of uh, other alleged criminal behavior, um, that trial uh, is grinding on in the trial chamber. In fact, it was just earlier this week that Doik, the person convicted and sentenced to life in 001, completed his testimony in the current phase of the case against Nguyen and Q. Sempen. Of all the evidence that has been put forward, what to you has been the most memorable? We've seen some, from a historian's point of view and an academic's point of view, it's just a wealth of information that's come out through this tribunal that we would never have had had it not proceeded. What, what are some of the more memorable moments? A truly astonishing amount of evidence has been brought to bear in these cases at the extraordinary chambers. Um, and one of the things I've learned uh, working through that legal process is that the criminal charges that are brought in these cases, uh, war crimes, genocide, and other crimes against humanity, are exceedingly complex laws with many different elements that have to be proven and satisfied. So it's not as if there is uh, a single smoking gun or a, a magic bullet that will uh, hit the target on the bullseye. Instead, it's an accretion of many, many, many different details uh, comprising many different types of evidence uh, that will end up proving all of the different elements of the crimes. And there are so many different elements of statements from the accused persons themselves, uh, from their former subordinates, uh, documents that were published by the regime itself, uh, of which indeed very many survived that showed us a great deal about uh, not only their uh, policies and their internal decision-making processes, but also the, the means and methods of communication uh, within the uh, uh, bureaucratic structures of the regime, uh, how orders were uh, passed down the chain of command, and how reporting of the implementation of those orders came back up the chain of command. Um, there is also all of the, the mass grave evidence. Uh, there's a fantastic wealth of photographic and video evidence. Uh, it really goes on and on. So some of the examples um, I, I kind of remembered that have come out of that have come out of the court. What one that particularly struck me was when it was revealed that Nun Chia had okayed for his two nieces who were married to Chinese doctors, I understand, how he basically sent his own family to S21 where they were exterminated. I mean, it's almost like he let his own, members of his own family be purged as proof of his own purity 
within this ultra Maoist construct. I find that extraordinary. And then there was <clears throat> the evidence that the Vietnamese had uncovered when they first came in and what they found at S21. Uh, the sheer kind of industrial scale barbarity was truly awesome. Part of the internal ethic of the Communist Party of Kampuchea was a type of personal abnegation that the Khmer Rouge referred to as being absolute. You had to be absolute, uh, which meant that you had to strip off all of your bourgeois personality and dedicate yourself totally to the revolution. You had to strip away all other attachments uh, to possessions, uh, to money, uh, to find food, uh, to family, to religion. You had to absolutely strip away all of your attachments to all things except the party itself and the revolution. And this indeed was expected of all cadre. And so in that respect, uh, this was not particularly remarkable on Nguyen Chea's part. He was simply doing what he expected of everyone else. Right. But w when you see Cambodians lining up by the hundreds, day after day, to get into the tribunal, it's obvious that they never really comprehended what was going on around them at the time. And now they're getting some insight into into that, exactly what you're saying, that type of thinking. What sort of impact do you think this tribunal is having on the broader Cambodian population? Cambodians use a, a, what I think is a rather fetching phrase about what it was like to live during the Khmer Rouge Revolution. Uh, they call it being a frog in a well. You can only see one tiny patch of the sky uh, that is directly above you. Um, uh, so much of how the Khmer Rouge organization operated was done in extreme secrecy, even from other members of the organization, uh, much less from the public at large and in general, uh, so that by the end of the revolution, uh, most Cambodians really didn't know exactly what had happened to even themselves, much less the entire country, except that so many members of their family had disappeared. Uh, so indeed, there has been tremendous interest on the part of the Cambodian public in uh, the proceedings of the extraordinary chambers. Uh, and in fact, I, I believe that uh, by now, um, more than 200,000 Cambodians have attended at least one trial session of the court uh, to observe the, uh, the uh, judicial proceedings in person. And that's more than all of the other internationalized tribunals combined in terms of people from the affected population having the opportunity to see the judicial process in action. And I think that's emblematic of the uh, the, the extraordinary impact uh, that these proceedings have had on the Cambodian public at large. You know, Luke, when I began this work, um, the, the mere mention of the term Khmer Rouge would literally strike terror into the hearts of a lot of Cambodian people. It's, it's as if you had invoked the name of demons from hell.
and you could see the fear in people's eyes just at mentioning it. And a, a corollary of that is that people just didn't talk about it. Uh, parents didn't talk to their children about it. Uh, teachers didn't talk to their students about it. Um, the government only talked to the public about it in the most hackneyed um, uh, propaganda terms. Uh, there had really been no honest, open discussion among the Cambodian people about what had happened to them during the Khmer Rouge Revolution. I think probably the single most important thing coming out of the entire Khmer Rouge tribunal process is not any particular verdict, but instead the fact that these proceedings have, in effect, given the Cambodian people permission to talk to each other about what happened, um, to talk to their neighbors, uh, for victims to talk to perpetrators, uh, for different segments of uh, the population to begin communicating with each other again and to stop seeing each other as us and them, uh, as victim and perpetrator, and to begin to see each other as once again fellow citizens of Cambodia. And I think over the long run, that will probably be the most valuable outcome of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. And that leads me into my final question. How much further do you think the Khmer Rouge Tribunal can go and what do you think its legacy will be at the international level? Mm. A complex question, Luke. Uh, uh, the answer to which no one knows at present. The tribunal has an ongoing document, a living document, that they call their completion timeline. Uh, the current completion timeline, which I believe is version 8, shows the 002 case uh, reaching finality in the year 2019. Now you have to bear in mind that in all previous versions of the completion timeline, uh, they had guessed too short and it took longer. So 002 could well stretch beyond 2019 by the time they get there and see what is remaining to do. But then there are also cases 003 and 004, which have been languishing in the Office of Co-Investigating Judges for nearly seven years now. According to the current international co-investigating judge, he expects to issue closing orders in case 003 by the end of this year and in 004 perhaps by the middle of next year. A closing order would mean either the cases are dismissed or, or they are ordered sent for trial. Um, if the co-investigating judge orders the cases dismissed, then that's it. They're over. If, however, he orders them sent for trial, we will have a very interesting situation because since 2009, Prime Minister Hun Sen has been vowing that he will not permit these cases to go to trial. And at that point, I'll just quickly interject and add that uh, 03 and 04 involve 
uh, Khmer Rouge cadre from further down the pecking order, not the original five. So we're looking at we're actually looking at an expansion of the tribunal into areas previously unknown, I think, in terms of the wider public. And this is potentially explosive, and it has raised the hackles of uh, of Hun Sen and the powers that be in Cambodia. Well, as someone who's been studying the Khmer Rouge for going on 40 years, I might quibble in terms of how explosive I think these cases will actually be. Uh, but it is true that should they come to trial, or even if they don't, if the evidence that has been gathered concerning them is eventually made public, I think it will be very revealing to many people about exactly how the orders handed down from the party center from people like Supreme Leader Pol Pot and his deputy Nguyen Chea, what happened when those kinds of orders were implemented around the periphery? And indeed, that was the original intent of the Office of Co-Prosecutors, that the first set of cases would illustrate the people who dreamed up the Khmer Rouge system, formulated the policies, and ordered that they be implemented, and then cases three and four were designed to show what happened when cadres at the zone level and below received those orders and then implemented them. How important do you think three and four are, and do you think they'll go ahead? I think cases three and four are crucial in terms of the public's understanding of how the Khmer Rouge regime operated and how the terror unfolded in practice. Uh, what happens when you give those orders and what happens when somebody follows those orders. In terms of whether or not cases 003 and 004 uh, will ever see the inside of a courtroom, I'll tell you what, Luke, I learned a long time ago that there's no profit in trying to predict what's going to happen in this country in the future, and so I tried to avoid that. And on that note, I'd just like to thank Craig Etchison for his time. It's been uh, a wonderfully informative discussion. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Luke.